Morning. morning. Great to be with you here on this beautiful morning. You all get extra credit for coming today on this. Uh, you know, it's cold, but it doesn't look that cold. You know, it's not that bad. Glad you're here. Those of you watching online as well, we're here. There's still a seat for you if you want to come, you know, join us. We're glad to have you here this morning. We began a series last Sunday. That video highlighted that on really our core beliefs, a firm foundation. It's on our core beliefs. So you might say our doctrine or theological beliefs. We call them articles of faith. And the very first one, what I'm going to talk about this morning, is our belief, this is an article of faith, that the Bible, okay, the one I have here, the one you have, uh, whatever, however you have it, whatever form, is the words of God, the word of God. The words. So we have an article. Let me just take a look at it quickly. You don't see this often, but it's on our website. If you're members, you've seen this, of course. We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as verbally inspired of God and inerrant in the original writing, and that they are the supreme and final authority of faith and life. Now, there's so much in there. How could I unpack that? What does that really mean? And how is that really an article of faith, which is our point of this series? I'm only going to scratch the surface, but I want to at least hit three things in this uh, sermon that I have, the time I have left. One is what the Bible is, okay? What the Bible is, what the Bible does or it can do, right? And what the Bible is about, what the Bible is, what the Bible uh, does or can do in your life and in mine, and what the Bible is fundamentally about. One passage of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, follow along as I read. So I will always remind you, Apostle Peter, of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, speaking here now of the the Old Testament, and you would do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These words are Peter's, you might say, his last word, Second Peter. He mentions even in this passage, I'm about to die, right, in a, in a, in a clever way. You know, as the Lord has made known to me, my departure is near. He's, he, these are his last words that ought to tell us something. And he's the, the last words for the, for the guy or one of the, the, you might say, the principal leader, not the only one, but the principal leader of the church of Jesus Christ for the last, give or take, 30 years. Okay, if we do the math. Okay, so Peter lived, some of the apostles did not 
lived. Some died before him, some after. He lives for about 30 years. He knows, as the Lord has told him, that his days are numbered. And he says to the church, yes, to, to the people who are, he's writing to, right, this group of churches, this was a circulated letter, but really to us to say, let me tell you what the most important thing is that I want to say before I go. And it's about the Bible, okay? It's about the Bible, very practical. And I didn't read verse 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, but he said, listen, you have, we have these great and precious promises, right? He calls them in verse 20, Scripture. We have these great and precious promises. And they say there's two things that these great and precious promises can do for you and they can do for me. One, they give you access into the life of God. If you're a note taker, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter or, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. They give you access into the life of God. This is the exact words of the NIV. We participate in the divine nature. Okay? That's what it means to be a Christian. You participate in the divine nature. It means it's more than in your head. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's in your, it's in your attitudes. It's in your behaviors. And you can participate in the divine nature through the great and precious promises. And they keep you from the corruption of the world. To escape the corruption of the world. So let me just say before we get any further. You know, is the, as an article of faith, do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Yes, I believe that. I want to affirm that. But it's much more than some sort of intellectual assent. He's saying, listen, to, to engage the Bible... It's not just what the Bible is, we'll talk about it in a minute, what the Bible can do for you. It helps you, it helps me, if you're open to it, if you engage it, that you can participate in the divine nature, okay? The love of Christ, the, the qualities of the, the fruit of the Spirit, and you can escape the corruption of an evil world, okay? That's what he wants to talk about. He's saying, you would do well. Right? It's at verse 9. To pay attention to these things, the scriptures. That's my message today. You would do well to pay attention to these things. He calls Peter, the apostle, in verse 20, the Old Testament writings. Of course, the New Testament is being written. But he says, we have this prophetic message. It's completely reliable. No prophecy has ever been of human origin. But prophets, but he calls them in verse 20, scripture First thing I want to point out, he's calling the Old Testament Scripture, and then if you're a note taker, the next chapter or two chapters later, chapter 3, verse 16, he says the writings of Paul are also Scripture. So in this passage, he's saying, listen, the Bible as they had it, which was the Old Testament, and as it was being written as we have it, is the Scriptures. Peter believed, this answers the question, I offer this is kind of a little seminary question. Did the people writing these books, Peter, James, the apostle, did they know they were writing scripture? I always say, oh no, they didn't know that. They just thought they were doing their duty and eventually it becomes codified as scripture. According to 2 Peter 3.16, they did know they were writing scripture. It's kind of mind-blowing, okay? Peter's calling them scriptures, the apostle Peter believes these words. Now listen carefully. Though human, because I'm going to address some of your doubts and our friends' doubts. Peter's saying, listen, I want to get it out there. For prophecy has never had its origin in human will. But prophets, now wait for it, verse 21. Though human. He says, I get this. I'm a human being. If anyone knew he was a sinner, I think Peter did. Right? By the time he wrote this letter near the end of his life, he had had some major failures. He's saying, listen, it doesn't make sense to me either in a way. 
Though human, I believe these are the very words of God. How does that happen? Though human, somehow, right, we don't exactly, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying, I was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul will use a different metaphor. If you can note taker, 2 Corinthians, we're not going to look at it. Or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul will say, all scripture is God-breathed. Used to, the old versions used to say, inspired by God. But the, the, the newer versions say, God-breathed, which is a more literal translation of the Greek. This is where we get the idea of you know, verbal inspiration, which was in our definition. It's not just ours. What do we mean by verb? There's a sense in which we don't know exactly how this happened. And I'm sure Paul, the apostle, is getting those words. Gaul scripture is God-breathed. I'm sure he's taking it from the image of Genesis chapter 1. Right? We don't know exactly what happened, but when God, you know, in some manner of speaking, we don't know exactly how this happened either. It says, and the Lord breathed into humanity, man and woman, and they became a living being. There's something about the life of God being transferred into human flesh and made them a living being. And so Paul uses that. So we don't really understand exactly how this all works, right? But we're saying its, it's origin is with God. Think about it. How did God do it? We don't know. How did God work with 40 different authors, human authors, at different times, in different places, over the course of 1,500 years to make up your Bible? So Peter says, I don't know exactly how he did it. Paul saying, I don't know exactly how he did it, but we believe that it originates with God. It carries his authority. And by the way, this is an article of faith. I can't prove it to you. It's an article of faith. But this is what Peter is telling you about the Old and the New Testament. Now, one quick minute. You don't have to put the definition back up there, but it says, verbally inspired and the inerrant, that is, they're inerrant in the original writing. What in the world does that mean, right? How many times do you see that word? Not very often. It's a 20th century word. Inerrant. You can see by the nature of the word, it's talking about error, inerrant. And what the writers are saying is this. The word inerrant or the inerrancy of the scripture was a response, a defense to, let's say, modernism, skeptical modernism. I'm talking about the 20th century, the 19th, 20th century, who were not so focused on the theology of the Bible, talking about non-Christian, largely academics, not so focused on the theology, they were focused on the text itself, right? Because it was textual criticism. Is this text reliable? And so, because why did they wonder if the text was reliable? Because there are, of the New Testament alone, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, there are over close to 6,000 copies Okay, dated around the first century, 6,000 copies in libraries under glass all over the different places in the world. But of those 6,000 copies, think of how many copies that is. You know how many their copies are of Homer? One or two. Plutarch? One or two. Herodotus? In other words, it's a, it's a virtual miracle, right? That documents that are that old have survived the providence of God. There are variants. What do I mean by variants in these thousands of documents? There's a name that's transposed here. There are some numbers, 10,000 or 1,000. There are some word orders that are changed. These are called variants. And so critics, when they started to study the history of the Bible and original languages and other books, they said, listen, 
There's a problem. The Bible, therefore, can't be true because there are variants. So they came up with this idea. It's a by faith kind of thing to say, listen, we acknowledge the variants. We know they're there in these 6,000 documents. But we believe that there is no error in Aaron in the original writing. So I just want to tell you what that word means. Okay, That's what they're talking about. They know there are variants, but here's the thing. I would say this is the bigger thing, the bigger truth that's obscured in this idea about of inerrancy. We might call it the providence of God. That with 6,000, give or take, copies of the Greek New Testament, okay, and various variants, very few of them, 99 point something percent of these 6,000 manuscripts are exactly the same. And when it comes to core doctrines, the things that we're celebrating here or affirming in our faith, none of them are even touched. In other words, somehow in the providence of God, even through human error, even through a thousand ways in which we could make mistakes as human beings over the course of 2,000 years, all of these manuscripts that are only discovered in the last couple hundred years, right, are basically saying the exact same thing about the truth of God's word. That's the real miracle. Okay. But that's what inerrancy is. That's what verbal inspiration is. It's the best way for the writers to say, or theologians to say, we don't really know how God did it. 40 different people over various times and places over the course of a span of 1,500 years that are bringing together the 66 books of the Bible. So, Rob, what do you believe, Pastor? Do I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible? I do because the Bible says it. Do I believe in inerrancy? in confidence in the originals, which none of us have, are without error, I do. But it begs the larger question. I don't have a lot much time left. It begs the larger question of how will you I engage this book and how it's supposed to change our lives, okay? Okay, so what the Bible is, first point. The Bible is the means of God's authority in the world. The Bible is the means of God's authority in the world. To call the Bible the words of God is not to say that they were written by God, okay? Or that they fell down in a parachute, right? And we found them somewhere. Clearly, the Bible points to human authors, doesn't it? We just got done saying, even Peter said this. Though human, they spoke from God. 2 Peter, 1 Peter, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these human authors... If you look at not only in English, but certainly in Greek and Hebrew as well, they have a style, they have a vocabulary, they have a perspective. Let's just take the Gospels as a for instance. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some of you know this. They're all talking about the same person, the life and work and passion of Jesus Christ. But Matthew is focused on Jesus the King, the Messiah. Many of the verses are from the Old Testament. He's proving to a lot of Jewish Christians that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The, the genealogy of Matthew starts with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Mark, on the other hand, is trying to talk about and focus on Jesus the servant. It focuses less on what Jesus says. There's less teachings of Jesus in order what Jesus does. Jesus is the servant, the great servant leader. And Luke is focused on Jesus as the son of man. That although Jesus is God the Son, he's also, he also is fully human. And Luke focuses on this and his genealogy doesn't begin with Abraham, like Matthew's. It begins with Adam. He's saying, I want to root Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in the human race. And then John, of course, is going to focus on Jesus, God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
So four different authors, clearly their vocabulary, their style, their perspective is respected. Though human, somehow they spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is, quickly, I believe, historically accurate, internally consistent, full of hundreds of fulfilled prophecies has been influenced the course of human history, changed millions of lives, has a majestic beauty and a profound insight that no other book does. Virtually all the great literature of the world, take it from an English major, I didn't know it all, but I read a lot of it. But anyway, virtually all the great literature of the world, even those written by people who were atheists, often are based and quoted in the Bible. It's a profound book like any other. But here's my point. Prove it to me, Rob, or so I can prove it to my friends, right? The Bible is self-attesting and self-authenticating. What does that mean? In other words, I can't prove it because who can I appeal to? Who can we appeal to? Who is the higher authority for which we can take the Bible and the questions that you or I may have to say to validate it? Well, we could go to human logic, but the Bible's not a book about logic. We could go to scientific truth, right? That's where the last 80 years, we want to go to scientific truth. But the Bible is not a scientific book either. What is the Bible? Okay, that's what I mean by self-authenticating, self-attesting. The Bible is not a book of human logic, although it has logic in it. The Bible is not a book of scientific truth, although it may have scientific truth in it. The Bible is a revelation about who God is, which is why Peter is making a mention it here. We, he's saying, listen, this is reliable. You can trust it. You would do good to pay attention to it like light in a dark world. And I'm just telling you by faith that somehow God breathed into human beings. He worked through human agents. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Somehow this happened, but it came first from God. We ourselves, verse 18, heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter goes to the transfiguration. Matthew 17, if you're a note taker, saying, listen, before we ever wrote anything down, before I ever wrote anything down, before Paul ever wrote anything down, before Peter ever, uh, before John ever wrote anything down, before it became, this didn't come together, I'm talking about the New Testament now, for many, many years till after these people were dead, okay, the, the, the coming together of the New Testament, before they ever wrote anything down, they heard the voice from heaven, like Moses did on the mountain. That's what he's telling you in verse 18. This is my son in who I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right? That's what he's trying to say. So what's my point? When we talk about the authority of Scripture, what we really mean is the authority of God through Scripture. Understand? Of course the Scriptures are from God, and God uses human agent. But it's about experiencing the authority of God through Scripture. That's what Peter's trying to say. Long before I wrote it down, I heard it on a mountain from God. And this is, by the way, how many people experience Jesus. Listen to these words. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. 
end of the Sermon on the Mount, the most significant teaching of Jesus in the Bible is the Sermon on the Mount in a manner of speaking, as far as the depth and breadth of it. This is how it ends. Very last words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, guess what? It's the content is not new. What is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's going over the Ten Commandments for the most part. It has been said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, this is what it really means. It is said, you shall not murder, but let me tell you what it really means. It is said, you make, you let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus isn't giving new content, but he's teaching with authority. Because what we mean by the authority of the scripture is the authority of God behind the scripture. And you know what's interesting about the, those verses, verses 28 and 29? When Jesus had finished, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because they saw him as one who had authority. But guess what? Not everybody was amazed. Some were. Some were amazed. Some were astonished. Some felt it was authoritative. Others did not. Right? What the Bible is, it's a means of God's authority in the world. What can the Bible do? Okay? It's up to you and me to a degree. The Bible is our primary source for life change. People then and now. This is what Peter's saying. We also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable. Right? This is not a verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised stories. People then and now are spinning cleverly divine stories to tell us about what is true, about who you are, about what makes you happy. And a lot of them are lies and a lot of them are dangerous. It was true in Peter's day and it's true in ours. And and they're not the kind of lies and dangerous things, these cleverly devised stories that are going to send you to hell if you happen to be a Christian, okay? If you believe them, if you don't pay attention to the, to the prophecy, to the scripture, as Peter's saying to his crowd as he leaves, but they will rob you of the life that is truly life, okay? That's what he's worried about, and I'm worried about, to most of us in this room, that you can only get in a life-changing relationship with Jesus largely through the scriptures, okay? A lot of what the Bible says, let's get to the application of this message. A lot of what the Bible says, which is how God speaks to you, or one of his, certainly his primary way to speak to you and to me, is through these 2,000-year-old words and more, okay? It's, it's a living document. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is, is, like a, is, like a, is, is, is alive. It's like a sword that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and, and discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's a metaphor. But he's saying, listen, this is a living word that comes through the Spirit and and unsettles you and speaks to you and brings light into a dark place in your life, okay? The Bible is our primary source for life change. But the Bible says what the Bible says. A lot of what the Bible says may, may challenge your thinking and make you uncomfortable. That's my point. A lot of what the Bible says may challenge your thinking and make you uncomfortable about what, for instance, what are you talking about? About what marriage is. 
about human sexuality, about what it means to be a man or be a woman, about what it means to raise children, what it means about loving people that are not your kind, that are not your color, that are not of your party. The Bible says a lot of things that will make you uncomfortable, but if you only accept the things you like and reject the things you don't like, you won't have a true relationship with God Certainly not one that's going to change your life. Because the only person who truly knows how you work is God. Okay? That's why you have to trust him. He's also the person that loves you more than anyone else uh, than you and I could ever imagine. Right? If you only accept the things you like and reject the things you don't like, you won't have a true relationship with God. Which, by the way, this, I mean, this is a series, this isn't some academic lecture. This is a series on the articles of faith. I can't prove to you the Bible is the word of God. Either can Peter. Paul, they're using metaphors. God breathed. But then Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, if you're a note taker, said, listen, God has spoken to us in many and various and sundry ways, but, not through, but now he speaks to us through his son. Right? The, the Bible doesn't give us this kind of perfect clarity about how God did what he did. You have to take it by faith. But ultimately, it's self-attesting. It's self-authenticating. I'm standing up here today not because I have some kind of grand answer to how I can prove to you, like I can prove some kind of scientific fact under a microscope that the Bible is the word of God because of what it's done in my life. Right? But what it's done in my life and what it's done in your life this is how the Bible ultimately is proved true to us. A true conviction, that's what you want, I want, that the Bible is the word of God is not developed without a true engagement of his words. In other words, it's not as if the Holy Spirit finally, I've been a Christian for many years, and the Holy Spirit finally comes to me and knocks me on the head and says, Rob, that book on your shelf, sort of a revelation. That is the word of God. That's not how it happens. Okay? That's not how it happens. It happens as you read it prayerfully and you hear God's voice in those words and you realize that God is speaking to you. Right? The authority of Scripture, what we mean by that is the authority of God that happens in your life through Scripture. Okay? Through Scripture. Is it happening in your life? Is it happening in my life? John 20, 30, and 31. That's how he ends his gospel. Jesus performed, you've heard this verse, many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. Whether he's talking here about the gospel of John or for that matter, the entire Bible. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name, okay? That's saying a lot. These things are written. God chose the written word as a primary means of his authority in the world. That you may believe. In fact, it's believing something very concrete. That's why I'm saying the Bible is not a book of logic, although it has logic in it. The Bible is not a book of scientific truth, although it has scientific truth in it. It's a revelation of God. This is my son. We were on the holy mountain just like Moses was, Peter said. And we heard the voice of God. 
that said to him, it's almost like a transfer, to saying, listen, everything that was said, Moses, David, what it was said, now I'm telling you, this is my son. Standing right in front of you, saying to Peter, James, and John, in whom I am well pleased, start listening to him, because when he speaks, I speak. Okay? That's an act of faith. This is what John's saying, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in Jesus, you might, you may, excuse me, have life. And his name goes back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, which I started this sermon on. He says, take hold of these precious promises. You would, be, you would do well to pay attention to them as light in a dark place. You'd do very well to do that. Why? Because they're going to give you two things. It's not an intellectual ascent. It's not some check the box. They're going to give you, they're going to help you participate in the divine nature. Wow. This is what I want. I want to get over my sin struggles. I want to have clarity in thinking. I want to know who I am. I want to live in reality. I want to have the power of God. I want to have the fruits of the Spirit. I want to love like Jesus loves. This is what I, I want to participate in the divine nature. He's saying, listen, there's only one way. We have these great and precious promises. And number two, they will help you escape corruption in this evil world because it's coming over you and it's coming over me like a tsunami every single day. Okay? The Bible is our primary source for life change. Said another way, how do you come to a, how do you come to a place in, as an act of faith and say the Bible is the word of God? Um, there are some important things to as I talked about, the Bible is historically accurate. It's internally consistent. It's influenced the world. There's a lot of ways we can look at that. It's beautiful. It's profound. It's, there's a majestic beauty to it. But it's really going to be proved to you and proved to me as you let it read you and you read it and it changes your life. That's what Peter's saying. That's what I'm saying. Lastly, the Bible is the story about Jesus. Let me just say a few things and we're done. The Bible is not students listening to me today, you know, young people, or anybody, really. It's not a list of rules. Whoever said that? What a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a bad sermon that was. The Bible is not a list of rules, not a rule of commands. It's not even a collection of doctrines. We collect these doctrines if we study the Bible, which we're doing even in this series. Over time, they emerge. You want to affirm the truth. What is the Bible then? What is the Bible? The Bible is a story Real true story, but it's a story about Jesus redeeming the world. You know, when Jesus Christ said many times, I was looking at this the last week or two, a lot of times, if you read the Gospels, and Jesus did this, and they, what, he did this to fulfill the Scripture. And Jesus did this, don't worry about this fulfills the Scripture. And he did this, to, and sometimes you could think, well, what Jesus was doing was, you could think this, that Jesus Christ as the Messiah is, has this list in his back pocket. And he's got these 20 things. He's ticking off the list. And I got to get on a donkey. And I got to walk on water. And I got I to gotta do these things. It's almost like he's, he's getting his list. And when he gets he's done, he's done. Jesus is, is, is filling out the actions of these Old Testament prophecies. But that's not what he's doing. Jesus is trying to communicate when he says, and this was done to fulfill the scriptures, the true storyline of the Bible of which he is the principal character. Luke 24, 25 to 27. Listen carefully, we're almost done. He said to them, 
To who? To his disciples. Me and you, but in this case, the 12. How foolish you are. This is, it wasn't the 12 disciples, a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. How foolish you are. <clears throat> and how slow to believe all that the prophets, in that case, all they had was the Old Testament, have spoken. Why, why does he say that? Because he's talking to the two of the disciples, Luke 24, and they're so discouraged and so sad. And because the guy that they thought was the answer to all their problems was just crucified, capital punishment, and they're disillusioned, right? And Jesus comes in a disguised way, if you know this story, Luke 24, and he's testing them. And he goes, hey, what's up? And they said, what's up? This is a paraphrase, but it's not bad. What planet are you from? How could you not know all that just took place in the last couple of days? This guy that we thought was the answer to all our problems. We thought he was the Messiah. He did all these great things. And then he was arrested and crucified. And Jesus says, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Did you ever read Isaiah 53, 54, 52? And that by believing, or excuse me, um, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And, watch this, beginning with Moses and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Right? It's always been about him. That's what the Bible's about. So if you're coming to the Bible looking for this, that, or the other thing, human logic, scientific truth, uh, if that's the reason you're coming, if that's, you're, you're, you're missing the point. I believe it is historically accurate. I believe it is, is internally consistent. I believe that, it's, that it's, that's, it's influenced human history more than anything by a country mile. Nothing else touches it. It's beautiful. It's profound. It's majestic. But it's, it's, a, it's about one thing. It's about God's revelation of himself in the world through the person of Jesus Christ. He's what it's all about. And it's believing in him that changes your life and changes my life. It, and it's only through a committed relationship with him in the scripture that brings new life, that brings new possibilities, in new power like nothing else can do, okay? That's what the Bible is. That's what the Bible does or can do if you're open to it, and it's what the Bible is about. And let me say this. Pete mentioned this last week. Uh, 365, if you don't have a Bible reading plan, it's not magic. It's meant to help you read through the New Testament and the Old Testament prayerfully, carefully, not as an intellectual assignment, but as, uh, as words of God that can speak to you. That's my challenge to you if you're not reading the Bible daily, prayerfully. And also, as Pete mentioned last week, or uh, I did as well, you can, you can begin to work through these great truths daily. We have a habits journal, right? Get one if you didn't take one. Right on the table and you walk out, to help you process the word of God if you don't already do that on a daily basis. Amen? All right, I'm going to pray, and then there's going to be a quick video. Let's pray.
God, thank you for this day. We love you. We love your word. Help us, each of us, wherever we stand and sit, I should say, this morning um, on the word of God. Help us to ask these more fundamental questions, Lord. What is the Bible? Let's start there. What is the Bible? Um, what does the Bible claim to do for one who reads it and opens their life to it? And what is the Bible fundamentally all about? Open our eyes, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.